Hey, everybody, before we start today's episode, we wanted to let you know that Stuff You Missed in History Class has been nominated for a Webby Award this year. We've been nominated for Best Writing in the podcast category. You can vote by going to webbyawards.com. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we're going to get to the actual fighting part of Bacon's Rebellion. And if you have not listened to our previous episode, which did not, it included some off-screen fighting in the form of things like the Anglo-Dutch Wars, but uh, that one did not have as much direct conflict. And if you have not listened to that one, this one might make sense on a very basic level, but there is just, there's so much context for this incident that we are not covering. We're not going to repeat all those things today. So uh, I recommend the other one before this one. And last time we talked about the many reasons Virginia colonists were frustrated by the 1670s, many of which were connected to the price of tobacco, taxation, and disparities between the richest and most prominent colonists and basically everyone else. But none of those issues were the spark that started the rebellion. Instead, it was the difference between how the colony was responding to Native people and how the colonists thought the colony should respond. The treaty that had ended the Third Anglo-Palatan War had drawn a clear boundary between the colony and the Palatan Confederacy. But as more colonists came to Virginia, they started moving closer and closer to that line and then eventually across it into what was supposed to be the Confederacy's territory. Also, not every tribe and nation in the area was a party to this treaty. The Powhatan Confederacy was an alliance of Algonquin-speaking tribes, but not every Algonquin tribe was part of the Confederacy. And Algonquin-speaking tribes were not the only tribes in the region. In terms of just the tribes that were either part of or affected by Bacon's rebellion in some way, there were at least 12 representing three different language groups. Yeah, and that is also, uh, there were more than 12 tribes and nations in the area. That's, that's I cannot stress enough that, like, North America was a hugely diverse place with a lot of individual uh, tribes and nations long before Europeans ever got to it. So, by 1675, most of the colonists in Virginia's more inland areas were really wary of the Native people, and some of them felt threatened by their proximity. This was especially true after they started hearing about King Philip's War, which had started in New England that year. Others just thought the Native people were in the way of colonial expansion, or that the colony's trade with Native nations was taking opportunities away from Europeans. Native people also became scapegoats for a lot of the colonists' frustrations that just did not have anything to do with them, with some colonists even going so far as blaming some kind of native sorcery for bad weather that ruined the tobacco crop. Regardless of their exact motivations, though, the prevailing sentiment among the colonists was that the native population needed to go. In July of 1675, members of the Algonquin-speaking Doeg people were caught up in an ongoing trading dispute with Virginia planter Thomas Matthews. Eventually, several Doegs raided Matthews' plantation, and Matthews' herdsmen killed at least one of them before dying of his own injuries. This led to a series of back-and-forth retaliations between the colonists and the Doegs, which ultimately involved the Virginia militia and at times crossed into neighboring Maryland. 
It was across the border in Maryland that the militia wrongly attacked a completely different tribe who had nothing to do with this situation. This was the Iroquoian-speaking Susquehannocks. The militia killed 14 Susquehannock hunters, attacking them while they were asleep in a cabin. The Doeg hunters that the militia was actually trying to go after was in a different cabin that was not far away. The Susquehannocks had previously maintained an alliance with the Virginia colony, but they couldn't just allow the killing of 14 people to go unanswered. They killed two colonists, along with killing some livestock and destroying crops, before contacting Governor Berkeley to negotiate for peace. Berkeley did not want another large-scale war with the native population. He thought that it would be expensive and destructive and that it would disrupt a profitable fur trade that he had established with some of the region's tribes. He was also concerned that a violent confrontation with one tribe might unite others in the area against the colonists, regardless of whether they were allies or enemies before that point. But the colonists and many of the militia had no patience for caution. They wanted the perceived native threat to be removed entirely. A volunteer militia continued to attack native people without much regard at all for who they were actually fighting, and they lay siege to a fort where the Susquehannocks had taken refuge. When several Susquehannock leaders left under a flag of truce to try to negotiate with the governor, the militia killed them. And this led to an outright war between the Susquehannocks and the colony. Yeah, Berkeley, in this whole scenario, Berkeley is the person that, like, differentiated the idea that there were multiple different native peoples and that they were not one monolith, uh, not necessarily because he was magnanimous or enlightened, but because he was the person that was responsible for maintaining a lot of these relationships. But the colonists, as a general rule, thought that, like, all native people were the same and needed to be treated the same. And the same treatment in this case was to, to get rid of them. And that's where Nathaniel Bacon Jr. finally comes into this picture after more than one entire episode about the rebellion name for him. He was 29 years old, and he had arrived in the colony a couple of years before. He was also Governor Berkeley's cousin by marriage, and he had been given a seat on the governor's council because of that family connection and his family's prominence. But he was also kind of a troublemaker. He had married a woman without her father's consent, and then he had allegedly tried to cheat a neighbor in England out of his inheritance, So his father, Nathaniel Bacon Sr., had paid for his son to go to Virginia in the hope that he would maybe gain some maturity and some wisdom there. Uh, Should be obvious that's not what happened. Spoiler alert, not so much. Uh, One of the younger Bacon's plantations was at the head of the York River, and it was there that a native fighting force, it is not clear from which tribe, killed his overseer and one of his servants. Bacon swore to avenge their deaths. A growing volunteer militia made up of free farmers, European and African indentured workers, and enslaved Africans made him its leader. Yeah, the the makeup of that militia is why we spent so much time talking about indentured workers and enslaved people in the previous episode, because they all united together as part of this force. In 1704, historian Robert Beverly described this militia and Bacon's involvement this way, quote, At first, they flocked together tumultuously, running in troops from one plantation to another without a head, till at last the seditious humor of Colonel Nathaniel Bacon led him to be of the party. This gentleman had been brought up at one of the inns of court in England. He had a moderate fortune. He was young, 
bold, active, of an inviting aspect, and powerful elocution. In a word, he was in every way qualified to head a giddy and unthinking multitude. We're going to talk about what the giddy and unthinking multitude did after we first pause for a sponsor break. Nathaniel Bacon Jr. was one of the many Virginia colonists who thought that the Native population needed to be eliminated entirely. In his own words, one of his goals was, quote, not only to ruin and extirpate all Indians in general, but all manner of trade and commerce with them. But this wasn't just Bacon and the rebels attacking Native people. The tribes themselves already had their own conflicts and divisions, and Bacon took advantage of those conflicts to wage his campaign. As one example, as the situation between the Susquehannocks and the colonists had become more violent, the Susquehannocks had needed to increase their numbers. So they pressured the members of other nearby nations, described in records from the time as Monacan and Analectan, to join them at their fort. Meanwhile, another tribe, the Okanichi, saw the conflict between the Susquehannocks and the colonists as an opportunity to get rid of one of their rivals for territory and trade. The Okanichis colluded with the colonists and with the Monacan and Analectan, who all attacked the Susquehannocks inside the fort where they were staying. Yeah, the Okanichis made almost a like a Trojan horse kind of situation where they they persuaded these people who were taking shelter with the Susquehannock to to rise up against them from within. But uh, the Okanichis, having done this, did not lead the colonists to form some kind of ongoing alliance with them or to offer them any sort of protection. When the Okanichis went back to Bacon with news of their victory over the Susquehannocks, Bacon's force attacked them too, killing more than 100 people and destroying their primary village. After all of these events, the surviving Okanichis and Susquehannocks each separately fled toward North Carolina. Meanwhile, Governor Berkeley, who had warned Bacon that his actions constituted mutiny, ejected Bacon from his council and declared him an outlaw. Then he dissolved the House of Burgesses and called for a new election and proposed that when the new assembly convened, it should call for a new colonial governor. In this election, Henrico County elected Nathaniel Bacon as one of its Burgesses. It's not clear how many of the votes came from people who legitimately agreed with his methods, though. I mean, he had a lot of support among the, like, the poor farmers and the indentured people and the enslaved people. He did not have a lot of support among the rich people who, at this point, were the ones who could vote. But there wasn't a printing press in Virginia at this time, so news was spread by somebody carrying a message physically into town and reading the message out loud at the courthouse steps Bacon's militia in Henrico County had prevented the messenger from reading the proclamation that had declared him an outlaw, so it's possible that people voting in this election didn't even know about it. And it's also possible that his militia intimidated voters on election day. When Bacon arrived to join the assembly on June 6, 1676, he was captured and forced to apologize and denounce his actions before he was allowed to take his seat. After he had done that, he was also restored to the governor's council. Then, Bacon asked for a commission in the army that the assembly had decided to raise to fight the Susquehannocks. The assembly denied him this request, and after some arguing about it, the governor ejected him from the council that he had just been reinstated to. 
So Bacon left. And then on June 23rd, he came back to Jamestown with 500 armed men. They surrounded the building where the assembly was meeting, and then Bacon threatened them in an extremely dramatic confrontation that culminated with the governor bearing his chest and daring Bacon to shoot him. Bacon did not shoot him, but he did manage to extort the commission that he wanted from the assembly. In general, the assembly did not think fondly of Bacon at all, but he had the building surrounded with fusiliers. Not only did they make him commander-in-chief of the army, but they also pardoned him for everything that he had done since the start of March. And with that, Bacon left again to continue fighting. Yeah, he managed to extort a whole lot of stuff out of the assembly that day. The assembly went on meeting after he left and adjourned on June 28th, and by that point had passed a whole series of reforms to try to address some of the issues that had become sources of frustration. These reforms required, for example, that the office of sheriff be rotated annually so one person could not become sheriff and stay there forever and abuse his power. The new laws also forbade people from holding multiple offices at once. That came up in our episode on the Regulator Wars, where one person would be like the Register of Deeds and the sheriff and some other thing, like this was happening in Virginia too. The Assembly also addressed some of the colonists' frustration with taxes and fees. They abolished the tax exemption that had applied to members of the governor's council, and they banned two people who had reputations for abusing their power from ever holding public office again. The Assembly also repealed that 1670 Act that had disenfranchised landless people, so they restored lots of people's rights to vote. Meanwhile, as the Army's commander-in-chief, Bacon continued his indiscriminate fighting against the native people of the Chesapeake Bay Area. He also made exorbitant requests for funding for his fighting force. This led Governor Berkeley to denounce him as a rebel and a traitor again, which led Bacon to issue a manifesto of his own denouncing the governor. Strangely, a whole lot of the grievances spelled out in Bacon's manifesto were things that had just been addressed by the Assembly. He wrote a whole lot about unjust taxes and about the governor playing favorites with his judicial appointments. Several of the points that he made were literally things that had just been reversed by the assembly. And then, of course, there's also a lot about the Native people. Bacon cites the Native involvement in the beaver trade as a problem, and he denounces the governor, quote, for having protected, favored, and emboldened the Indians against his majesty's loyal subjects, never contriving, requiring, or appointing any due or proper means of satisfaction for their many invasions, robberies, and murders committed upon us. The manifesto also criticizes Governor Berkeley for having pulled the English army back from the fight, leaving the Native people to, quote, burn, spoil, and murder. I really like all the murdering that he talks about. (laughs) Having thus denounced the governor at length, Bacon turned the army against the Pamunkey tribe. Not only had the Pamunkey been allied with the colony since the end of the Third Anglo-Powhatan War, but they had also signed a treaty with the colony just a few months before, after its leader, Kakakoeski, had agreed to provide about a dozen men for the colony's war effort. Bacon's force massacred at least 50 members of the tribe and captured others. From there, Bacon turned his attention toward trying to track down the governor who had left the capital of Jamestown to try to recruit more men for a fighting force of his own. Bacon had a small navy, which found and attacked the governor's fleet on Virginia's eastern shore. 
That's that little strip of land in Northeast Virginia that's separated from the rest by Chesapeake Bay. The governor and his loyalist force won this battle, and they hanged several of Bacon's officers. Then, both Bacon and Berkeley started moving back toward Jamestown. Berkeley got there first on September 8th. But then Bacon arrived and lay siege to the city for 10 days, at which point Berkeley and those still loyal to him fled. The rebels burned Jamestown on September 19th. As Bacon started to gain the upper hand, more and more prominent Virginians started taking his side in the dispute. With Jamestown destroyed, Bacon went back to the Virginia frontier to try to search for any Native people that they hadn't already fought. And some of his force went on the hunt for people who were loyal to the governor. These two forces probably would have done a whole lot more damage, but then Bacon died on October 26, 1676, of what was described as the bloody flux. This was probably a combination of typhus and dysentery. A day later, having no idea of Bacon's death, King Charles II issued a proclamation ordering that the rebellion be put down. It took about two more months of heavy fighting for the governor to finally regain control of the colony. For much of November, rebel forces controlled nearly all of the colony outside the eastern shore. But in the end, after huge casualties on both sides, Governor Berkeley did manage to regain control of the colony. In addition to the people killed in the fighting, Berkeley executed 23 of the rebellion's leaders. He also confiscated land and corn from many of the ones who had survived. And then he returned to Jamestown on January 22, 1667. A week later, three commissioners who had been dispatched from England at the end of the previous year arrived. After the proclamation from the king, Francis Morrison, Sir John Barry, and Colonel Herbert Jeffreys had been sent to put down the rebellion and to investigate what happened. And they had about 1,000 soldiers with him. By that point, though, the rebellion was over. This whole investigation was a frustrating embarrassment for Berkeley. He was about 70 years old, and he had lost most of his hearing, so the questioning was difficult, and it tended to escalate into both sides shouting at each other. But instead of being praised for restoring order, Berkeley was being investigated, and the investigation found that his treatment of the rebels that he had put into play with all the hangings and confiscations was overly harsh. As the commissioners were leaving, there was one last incident, described by one of the commissioner's clerks as, quote, the occasion of the scandalous postillion. Governor Berkeley's wife, Frances, had arranged a carriage to take the commissioners back to their barge. As they approached the carriage, an African man replaced the coach's postillion. That was someone who rode along as a guide, and in this case, may have also been the coach's driver, which wasn't entirely clear. The commissioners, having seen this happen, declined to get into the carriage. Apparently, they did not want to ride in the carriage that had just been given an African postillion. But the carriage followed them all the way to the river anyway. The commissioners later learned that this replacement postillion was one of the colony's hangmen. It's possible that he wasn't really the hangman, but that this was a rumor. If it was a rumor, it was definitely a rumor that they believed. So there is a lot going on with this story, including that an African man was presumably entrusted with executing Europeans in the colony, and that the governor's wife seems to have arranged this as a spectacle to insult the commissioners. Historian Susan Westbury argued in a 2004 paper that this was an example of Frances putting her political power as the governor's wife to use to try to support her husband. 
Probably did not help things, though. Her husband was removed from office. He was summoned back to England to answer for what he had done. But then he died on July 9th, 1677, before he had had the chance to give his account to the king. We have other accounts, though, including one written by a Mrs. Anne Cotton in 1686. Thomas Matthews, whose dispute with the Doeg had helped start this whole thing, also wrote an account of it 30 years later at the request of the first Earl of Oxford, Robert Harley, who at the time it was written was Secretary of State under Queen Anne. It's a mostly straightforward account, ending with Matthews' opinion that Bacon and his supporters were, quote, wheels agitated by the weight of his former and present resentments after their choler was raised up to a very high pitch at having been so long and so often trifled with on their humble supplications to the governor for his immediate taking in hand the most speedy means towards stopping the continued effusions of so much English blood from time to time by the Indians. In other words, a bunch of frustrated people were mad at the governor for ignoring their request to stop the native people. (laughs) But it's so much more florid the other way. (laughs) The king and his ministers repealed most of the reforms that had been passed by the 1676 assembly. So from that perspective, a lot of things went back to the way they were before. But at the same time, a lot changed in Virginia after this rebellion. And we're going to get to all of that after we have one more break from one of the sponsors that keeps the show going. After Bacon's rebellion was over, England negotiated a new treaty with several of the native tribes that had been affected by it. And this became known as the Treaty of Middle Plantation, which was signed on May 29, 1677. It acknowledged that all this fighting had started with, quote, violent intrusions made by the colonists against the tribes. The tribes who signed this treaty gave up their sovereignty and became subjects of the monarch in exchange for peace and protection. Under the terms of this treaty, each, quote, Indian king and queen had equal power to govern their own people, while also giving Kakakoeski, described in the treaty as the Queen of Pamunkey, authority over several other tribes. At least one of these tribes refused to be placed under her leadership, though. Yeah, this was, these were tribes that had previously been sort of under the jurisdiction of the Pamunkey, and they were like, we, we are free of that. We don't need to go back to that anymore. Under the Treaty of Middle Plantation, the native parties to the treaty were supposed to pay three arrows per year along with 20 beaver skins, and they were given the right to hunt, to fish, and to gather. They were supposed to have adequate land available to them, and they also had to agree to side with the colony against, quote, foreign Indians who were not party to the treaty if there was some kind of violent conflict with them. Overall, this document seems to attempt to treat fairly with the native peoples, but at the same time, it did require the ones that had not already become tributaries to the English to give up their sovereignty. And as the colonies and later the U.S. government's native policy became more and more similar to what Nathaniel Bacon had been advocating, its terms weren't really honored. They were also increasingly undermined by anti-native laws, such as laws that prohibited native people from testifying in court. Another big change that followed this was in the colony's labor. So Nathaniel Bacon, who was a wealthy newcomer to the colony, managed to lead a rebellion that was mostly made up of the colony's lower classes. It was small, free planters, indentured workers of all races, and enslaved Africans. And they had all come together to fight against a perceived native threat and then ultimately to turn against the colonial government. 
And the colonial elite saw this uniting of all the lower classes together as a huge threat. So after this, the assembly passed a series of laws separating the white and black population. Laws that specifically addressed the African population and enslaved Africans and which prohibited interracial marriages. Laws that allowed a person to be freed if they could prove that they were baptized were abolished. The law increasingly made divisions between black and white and slave and free. The colony also focused less and less on using indentured workers and more and more on enslaved workers. Some of this was part of an ongoing trend, but some of it was also a deliberate effort to move toward using slavery rather than indenture because permanently enslaved people were considered to be more easily controlled. But there were other factors as well, including economic changes in England that made it more expensive to negotiate indentures. And then, of course, word also got back to Europe. There was less and less available land in North America. There were all kinds of conflicts going on. Things, the idea of immigrating became less attractive to a lot of people. So Bacon's Rebellion accelerated a shift that was already underway. In 1680, three years after the rebellion ended, 7% of the population of Virginia and nearby Maryland were enslaved Africans. In 20 years, that rose to 22%. In 1705, the General Assembly passed an Act Concerning Servants and Slaves, which freed indentured servants at the age of 24, while codifying various aspects of slavery. This included outlawing resistance against white Christians by, quote, Negroes, mulattoes, Indians, and others, and absolving enslavers from guilt if they killed a slave while administering punishment. This shift also affected the enslavement of Native Americans, and some of it was just a matter of numbers. By the late 17th century, as the transatlantic slave trade was bringing more and more Africans to North America, there was less and less demand for enslaved Native Americans because there were just a lot more Africans available. The law on this continued to be kind of scattered with the General Assembly confirming that it was legal to enslave Native Americans in 1682, and then passing an act that said the opposite a year later. The assembly also used a law that had been passed back in 1665, so before the rebellion, to sell an entire community into slavery in the Caribbean in retaliation for one murder that happened in 1705. A series of court cases toward the end of the 1700s and into 1800 ruled that Native people were free, and as was the case with enslavement passing from an African mother to her children, that freedom passed from a Native mother to her children. None of this happened overnight, and there was a lot of overlap in the progression of indentured servitude and slavery in Virginia. But overall, Bacon's Rebellion accelerated those trends, leading the colony to turn to slavery more than indenture and to enslaved Africans more than Native Americans, until finally, virtually all of the enslaved labor in the colony was African, and slavery was viewed as something specific to Africans and people of African descent. But none of this is how people thought about Bacon's Rebellion in the years after it happened. This was especially true after the Revolutionary War, which started a hundred years later. In the wake of the Revolutionary War, people started thinking of Bacon's Rebellion almost as a dress rehearsal to the Revolution. A big proponent of this idea was Thomas Jefferson, who got a copy of Thomas Matthews' account in 1803. Jefferson arranged for this account to be printed in the Richmond Inquirer in 1804, along with his introduction, which read in part, quote, 
If this little book speaks the truth, Nathaniel Bacon will be no longer regarded as a rebel, but as a patriot. His name will be rescued from the infamy which has adhered to it for more than a century. The stigma of corruption, cruelty, and treachery will be fixed on the administration by which he was condemned. And one more case will be added to those which prove that insurrections proceed oftener from the misconduct of those in power than from the factious and turbulent temper of the people. This view that Bacon was a hero instead of a traitor and that the rebellion was an uprising against tyranny instead of a mutiny persisted for a really long time. A man named Thomas Jefferson Wurtenbacher wrote a book in 1940 that described Bacon as a patriotic hero. One of the essays that I read while researching this described this book as, quote, one of the worst books on Virginia the reputable scholarly historian ever published. And even in recent articles that acknowledge some of the context to all of this, there is a startling amount of phrasing that suggests that Berkeley was to blame because he ignored what the colonists wanted, which was to get rid of the native population. Yeah, that one of the first... Uh, I have access to, like, all kinds of encyclopedia-type resources through various libraries, and a lot of times that's where I will sort of start with either a refresher or some background information or that type of thing. And there was one that was sort of the two-paragraph summary of Bacon's Rebellion that really made it sound like, well, if the governor had just done what the colonists asked him to do, it would have been avoided. And I was like, the governor or the colonists were asking him to exterminate people? That just just doesn't seem like a great conclusion to be drawing in this thing that was written within the last two decades. Yeah. Uh, What's your scoop on listener mail? More uplifting? (laughs) (laughs) It is definitely more fun. It is from Greg. Greg says, Hi, Tracy and Holly. As a longtime listener, I thought I'd write to let you know what an interesting podcast you did on Sappho. My family history traces its roots to the Greek mainland and to Armenia. A great many years ago, my parents took the family on a summer vacation to Europe, spending some time driving around the continent, including a sailboat cruise along some of the Greek islands. That cruise ran into some weather, and to avoid becoming a sequel to Gilligan's Island, we took refuge in the port of one of the smaller non-touristy islands for a few days. That gave us a chance to wander its quaint narrow streets and local restaurants without the crowds and commotion that accompany the more popular destinations. Listening to your podcast brought back some memories of that wonderful trip. And I found myself on Google Street View wandering around the streets of the island of Lesbos as Sappho might have done, while listening to you read her poetry. I suppose, though, the architecture might have been just a little different back then. Keep up the good work, Greg. Thank you, Greg, for this note. I love that idea of using Google Street View to kind of go visit a place that you're hearing about on the podcast. Uh, I also love the Greek spelling slash pronunciation of Lesbos there because it's definitely a B in English, but apparently if you go to Greece, they will insist that that is not a B. So... Thank you, Greg, for sending us that note. That is a pretty ingenious thing to do, I have to say. Yeah, I have used, uh, I mean, I make use of Google Street View a lot for all kinds of, you know, is it? Is there a sidewalk this place I am planning to walk? That kind of thing. (laughs) Um, But like this, using it to sort of see what's this place like now in this podcast I'm listening to. That sounds really cool. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, and Twitter. 
You can come to our website, which is missinghistory.com, where there is a searchable archive of all the episodes we've done and show notes for the episodes Holly and I have worked on together. And you can subscribe to our show in Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 